This is episode number 87, Bonus Interview. Welcome, my name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds Podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who have overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. This week's interview is slightly different from the rest of ours, and that is, this is a reshare of an interview that we did on the Heather Parody's platform called Unconventional Leaders. The reason why I wanted to share this with you is because we've been receiving a lot of different questions about the story of not only myself, but why Overcoming Odds started in the first place and some of the reasons behind it. So I wanted to share this conversation with those who are not familiar with my story or the reason why Overcoming Odds exists to help you better understand the importance of the work that we are trying to accomplish. I truly hope that you enjoy this bonus interview that we did with Heather Parody. And if you have any feedback or any questions about anything that we are doing or some of our vision moving forward, please reach out to us through any of the social media platforms or our website at overcomingodds.today. Now, let's get back to this show. Guys, connecting with my friend Oleg Lohid for the second time this week, I think. I interviewed mm -hmm. him on our other show, LinkedIn Leaders, and really was just captivated by your story the two seconds I heard of it hmm. and then did some digging and listened to some other shows in your show and learned more about your journey and the impact that you're called to make in this world and that you're pursuing it head on and doing some just incredible work. You're an unconventional leader through and through. I'm so grateful to connect with you. Thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity for the second time, just like you said. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me, tell me, just get a little bit basic information. Where are you living at right now? How old are you? I'm 26 years old and I am living in Austin, Texas. Very cool. Very cool. And you moved to the States when you were around 12, 12 is that right? 12 years old. Yeah, it was 2005, October 5th, 2005, I believe. And, um, I came here and I started from scratch. I didn't know English. I didn't know anything about this part of the world. In fact, the, the story that I share with other people is that the one of the only things I did know at the time was a name Michael Jordan, and yet I couldn't even tell you what a basketball looked like. So that's how far back my journey began. And there are a lot of things that I ended up having to work through at such a, I guess you could say, young age. But you know, there's so much that goes unnoticed as far as when it comes to learning a different language. Mm -hmm. I think um, one of the phrases that I've heard after living for 14 years here in the States is that English is the, English is the easiest language to learn. I highly disagree for so many different reasons because it all depends what stage you are in life to learn a new language mm -hmm. and how many experiences have you had within your, your time that can help you adjust to the new environment that you are going to be a part of. So for me, when I came here at the age of 12, there were times where I sat in ESL classes 
with kids who are five or six or seven years old. Mm -hmm. Now at the time, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but you have to put myself, you have to put yourself in my shoes and understand it from the perspective of a 12 year old kid sitting next to a five year old who is literally learning how to color. And yet you are on the same level. So think about the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment that you experience and so as part of that, if you don't come to terms with things like that, it's going to hinder your learning process. Yep. Yep. So there are a lot of, a lot of challenges that I uh, had to overcome and a lot of it, I'm very grateful to be in the position that I am now and that is being able to reflect on my journey and pinpoint certain events and how they happened and I think why they happened. And I think that the biggest thing that I'm learning through this is the why or the reasoning behind each one of the events mm-hmm. is you get to determine that. That's the most important the most important part, which makes me believe that there is a reason for why everything happens in life because you get to choose that reason yeah. and you get to choose how you look at any of the situations at, the, at a time they might not have seen the most pleasant ones, but how do you look at them now? You know, do you allow those experiences to propel you forward and help you learn about more who you are and what you're capable of? Or do you allow them to stop your progress entirely? Yeah. Now, you told me you're 26. And mm-hmm. looking at you, you have even a younger face. So <laughs> if I was not looking at you, didn't know what you looked like, and if you hadn't told me you were 26 years old, I would say you were a lot older because just your demeanor, <laughs> you have like this old soul. You have really profound wisdom for what I consider still a young man. Mm-hmm. Were you always this way? I don't think so. I think life is a process just like success is. I don't think success is an end result. I think it's a process. And so for me, what I've learned is I was not always this way. It was a journey to get to this point. And, you know, the things that work for me, they may not work for other people, but I'm still willing to share that journey just in case people are able to see their own experience through me because I'm, I'm, I believe I'm a walking mirror just like you are. And every single person that we look at, if we choose, we can see a reflection of ourselves. And we can see aspects of, of ourselves which we may not have seen before. And so for me, this journey really started three to four years ago when I dove deep into personal development. And I started to read books. The first book I read was Think and Grow Rich. Mm-hmm. In fact, I read it three times in a row. Mm-hmm. And it changed my life. It changed my life on so many levels. And the biggest one was it really allowed me to understand that if I can think beyond what my circumstances are, that's how I'm going to grow rich. The rich is not necessarily the, the money that you have, the cars that you drive. The riches come from not even necessarily what you know, but how are you applying that knowledge? You know, there's a phrase, knowledge is power. Mm-hmm. I'd like to add on that knowledge is power with action. Mm-hmm. Just knowing something, it, do, it doesn't do you any good mm-hmm. unless you apply that and are able to learn through your own experience of whether or not that thing works for you. That's really what counts in life. And so for me, that, like I said, the journey started a couple of years ago and I started to really dig deep into different books. And as part of reading those books, I noticed myself become a lot more open-minded when it came to almost any, any situation that was in front of me even in situations where I didn't agree with people in the past, 
I noticed myself that all of a sudden I was able to put myself on the same plane, um, plane field as the person across from me. And that's where I think my personality changed. And I started to develop a much deeper relationship with curiosity. And that's where I started to really understand that in order for me to grow, in order for me to become who I need to be, I need to always stay curious about myself, my surroundings. And as part of that, it's like a ripple effect across all the other skill sets that happens. And that is you become a lot more aware, you become a lot more engaged within other people's conversations and even curious. Some of my friends, if you were to ask them now, how would you describe me? One of them gives the story that whenever we go in an Uber or a Lyft ride, typically the question is, oh, how often do you do it? Do you enjoy it? Um, you know, what do you do for a living beyond that? Mm-hmm. I always ask the question, like, why do you do this? Mm-hmm. You know, where are you from? Like, what, what made you come to this particular country and do this particular job? And it's really, really fascinating, the type of stories that you hear. Yeah. I'll give you the most recent one. I was, um, I was flying from Austin, Texas to Ann Arbor, where I'm recording the podcast episode from right now to visit my parents and do a surprise visit. And the Lyft driver that was giving me a ride, I heard the most fascinating story from him. And he was telling me about the instance he moved here uh, from Puerto Rico. And for some of us who may know the things that, have ex- that they've experienced there, and they're still recovering from a lot of that. And so he lost everything. Hmm. And it just made me think in that moment that how many times in life does that particular driver get a chance to really share that aspect of himself yeah. be, besides his family? Because if you think about it, one of the ways that like you learn about your story is by inviting other people into your environment mm-hmm. and giving them a chance to ask you questions, which you may not have thought before. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it really just boiled down for me, just op- being open-minded in environments and surrounding myself with people who have the best interest for me. And that was a journey of its own. That was a journey of its own, especially for a kid who grew up in Russia, relatively small town called Chibarkul for the first 12 years of my life. And, you know, one of the things I learned through that experience of really having to become an adult as early as five years old, because my mom was an alcoholic. My sister was 22 years older, but she didn't, she wasn't really at a point where she could take care of another kid. And so she did her best. And, you know, as part of that lifestyle at nine, as you might've seen from my uh, profile, I decided to relinquish my parents' rights. And I went into an orphanage alone, scared. I didn't know what to expect. And so as someone who had experienced that, those feelings of abandonment and neglect and rejection, it becomes very difficult to form trustworthy relationships, no matter where you are in life. I'm 14 years separated from that past life, and I still find myself questioning the essence of some of the relationships that I'm in and the friendships that I create. And so I think as part of it, there are elements of that past that will always be with me. Yeah. I don't think you ever forget your past. I think you find ways to cope and work through it. And in return, you become stronger, but at the same time, it's always going to be a part of you, no matter where you go. Over a huge piece of information just now. Uh Uh-huh. You gave, explain to me what what was the word you used? Relinquished. Relinquish. What does that mean? 
what it means is to give up your parental rights to the government so that you, I was nine years old. And so the government, you essentially become the word of the state and the government has um, authority over you and they become your quote unquote legal guardian. And so as part of that process, what ends up happening and what I really wasn't aware of, what I was looking for when I made that decision was I needed to change the trajectory of my life. And so I was looking for an opportunity to call a second home and still be able to stay in touch with my family. As a nine-year-old kid, I didn't really understand the fact that once I make that decision, there's nothing that my mom nor my sister can do to get me back. And one of the stories that I share is that the first week when I ended up going into the orphanage, I remember when I walked up the front steps, my sister was along with me and I had a duffel bag of clothes in my other hand. So we walked in, we were immediately met by the director of the orphanage who then introduced us to the caregiver. So the way our orphanage worked was that we had three families, um, one in, in each wing of the building and then one on the first floor. And I was in called family number one, which was in the left wing as you walked through the entrance. And so I remember we were met by the caregiver and I was given this tour through the orphanage and explained all the different chores and the things that we'd be doing as orphans on a daily basis. And as we walked into my room and I was um, accompanied by an older orphan at the time, he showed me my bed and he said, if you ever speak of anything, you'll get punished. And that's where I really got scared because I didn't really understand what that meant. And that's when I began to experience the feelings of, I want to go back home. I'm not, I'm not fitting well here. I don't know these people. And the first week I ended up running away. Mm-hmm. Later on, I learned that there was a poor, poor decision because when I came back, I was made an example of in front of the whole family. And the director pulled me into her office and, you know, she said, you can't do this. Um, and so I, I think I ended up doing that one more time when I ran away and I ran to my mom. I found her and I remember talking to her and telling her things, how I wanted to go back how the life that I was meant to live there was, it just wasn't the life that I pictured. And my mom ended up repeating the same phrase, which she used before I went into the orphanage. And that is son, everything will be okay. You know, we'll find a way. And, and that's where I think I, I really knew that there was no way that I'm going to get out. Hmm. So I signed myself up for a system that I didn't have um, a choice to get out. And so next obvious thing that I had to make was, well, how do I make the best of this? How do I not get in trouble? How do I stay away from the punishment? And so I obeyed every single rule. I obeyed all the laws. Um, I've seen it all, you know, that happens in that system. 99% of it, as you are able to see it through different online publications, it's true. The abuse that happens, the physical, the verbal. I remember a time getting picked up with two other kids from our school and we were taken to this it was a mental institution and one of the kids got dropped off there. And I remember their director looked at the other two of us and she said, if you guys behave in a similar way or don't perform, you'll end up there as well. And so, and you know, that kid ended up coming back to the orphanage a couple of weeks later, 30 pounds lighter, bruises all over his body, marks everywhere. And so you could just tell that 
you didn't want to end up in a place like that. So you, you had no option but to excel in school. You had no option but to always keep a smile on. You had no option but to not tell the truth about when you were asked, how is life at the orphanage? Are you treated well? I remember my sister used to come in to visit me. It was a monthly, bi-weekly or monthly basis. And the visitation room was located directly across from the director's room. And one of the things that was always a question mark was I never knew if the director was in her office. And so I was afraid to tell her the truth. I was afraid to tell my sister that, yes, I am getting abused. And I am getting made fun of. And all these other things are happening. And so I ended up lying to her for three years. I told her that, yep, things are great. I love it here. And when I reconnected with her, and this is a story we'll, we'll get into as well. When I reconnected with her six years after my adoption through a Skype call, I told her this story that, um, you know, I lied to you. It wasn't always like this. And she said, well, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? I said, how could I? Yeah. We're sitting directly across from the highest form of, of authority in that particular place. So if I were to tell you anything, I had no clue what was going to happen to me after you left. And there was nothing you could do mm -hmm. because you weren't my guardian anymore. Give, give us some context. Going back to your initial decision as a nine-year-old boy, mm -hmm. that's heavy. What, what was happening at home and how in the world did you get exposed to this idea of like, hey, I have the option to leave this and go into an orphanage? Mm -hmm. Well, everything at home was very different from a traditional household. And that is, like I said, I didn't have a father from a very early age. There are two stories that are going around. First one is that he left at birth. And um, the second, the most recent story that I heard from my sister was that he was actually arrested for um, killing someone. Mm -hmm. And uh, my mom, like I said before, she was an alcoholic. And so she didn't have a, she didn't have a stable place of her own. So her live, her lifestyle depended entirely on the boyfriend that she was dating at the time. Yeah. My sister had an apartment, which I stayed at a good amount of time. But just like any other kid, you want to be with your mom. And you are not going to accept the decision of, I'm going to abandon my mom to live with my sister. So I used to run away from my sister's place to go find my mom. And 9 out of 10, I came up short in the places that I looked. But looking back at that whole experience, my mom was one of the first people that really taught me what persistence and drive really meant. Hmm. Because it was that mindset of coming up short, nine out of 10, but just pushing yourself every day by telling yourself just one more place. Yeah. What if she's here? What if she's there? And that's really how I am here. That's why I'm at a, at a position where I truly refuse to accept you can't do something in life as an answer. There's always a way. As long as there's a will, there's a way. And so for me, it, it, that household really didn't create any sense of stability. And at nine, I had somehow heard of the orphanage system. I, I think it was somebody from my friend group or whoever else and then I remember having this visit 
where it was my sister and I sitting across from this woman who was in charge of placements or the orphanages. And she had asked me the question of, you know, do you want to go into the orphanage? Because I think I was old enough to answer that. And I, I don't know the legal terms as far as if I was the one that ultimately got to decide that or if my sister had to have some input. I'm sure she had to sign some sort of paperwork. Um, but it ultimately did come down to me. And so, you know, for me, the way that I made that decision was that I was just looking for a way out. I was looking for a way out out of my current situation. And as part of that, I think I was almost willing to do whatever it, whatever it takes to get out of it. And I think that's what makes me who I am today is the resilience. No matter what the situation I'm experiencing, I know that I'm going to find a way. And at nine, I don't think it was any different. Do you think that resilience is something you're born with and is innate or is it something that you learned? It's a really good question. I've been exploring this question for quite some time. I think we are all born with similar skill sets. I think they get defined through our decisions and experiences. So I think we all have the same toolkit, but our time determines which tools we get to use. Yeah. I think as part of that, what I begin to believe after I've heard so many different stories throughout this time is that we all have what it takes to be who we want to be. It's a matter of time. It's a matter of connecting with other people who can help you because if there's anything that I do believe in this world, it is that there's no such thing as self-made man. Yeah. I think the self-made term comes to the certain skills and the mastery of them because there's a huge level of discipline that has to come just from you, mm -hmm. just wanting it. But you also have to meet other people along the way mm -hmm. who can help you open doors, mm -hmm. whether it's literal doors or mental doors or whatever it is, help you think beyond how you currently think. And so to answer your question, I think we do have the skills, but it boils down to what are the choices that we're willing to make and are making consciously or subconsciously that are helping us uncover a lot of those skills. Yeah. Now fast forward us, you were adopted at 12, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And came, was it to Texas? Ann Arbor, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Okay. Tell us a little bit about what happened. So I came here to Ann Arbor, Michigan at 12. In fact, the place that I'm recording this from is my best friend's house who was one of the first kids to kick me a soccer ball on that middle school playground when I spoke maybe five words of English. And I ended up coming here. I started from scratch. I started with an English alphabet, to be exact. One of those alphabets where you pick up the letter and it says A, apple, B, banana. Yeah. So it's, it sounds all fun in theory, but when you're having to repeat it a thousand times, yeah. and you still don't understand what the letter even means or stands for, it becomes a little bit frustrating. So my first two to three years, in fact, the way that we did, I did communicate even with my parents and those that are surrounding me was through a paper dictionary. 
I used to carry a pocket-sized paper dictionary with me everywhere I went. Hmm. Now, I can't tell you that I used it to its full capacity because as a teenager, when you get frustrated, what ends up happening is you're not really going to take the time to look up the proper uh, translations of each word. And the other thing is that Russian, it has more characters than English. Therefore, it has a lot more words. And for me, the challenge was that I left Russia, I believe I was only in fifth grade or sixth grade. And so I didn't even know that much to begin with of that language and that history. And so I came here and it was a complete culture shock because what I'm learning here in the States is that a lot of the environment and everything around us, it's all accelerated learning. I mean, by the time you get to sixth grade, you're already thinking of SATs. And it's like, you don't even know what they stand for or what they can do for your future. Then you're thinking of college and then college is supposed to be the next step to your life. So everything is just, you know, want just piled up onto each other. And what I started to learn was that because everything is accelerated, then I'm going to have to adjust to this. I'm going to have to adapt to this environment. And so I, I persisted at everything I did. I trusted the process. I believed in myself. Now, that's not to say that I didn't have nervous breakdowns or cry sessions with my mom where we would stand in front of each other and just scream out of frustration because I don't know how to communicate what I'm trying to tell her and vice versa. And it's all, it's, it's funny now. It wasn't so funny back then when it happened, but you know, one of the biggest role models that I was very fortunate to meet was my sixth grade teacher. His name is Rick Hall. And I'm forever grateful for him and the things that he's done for me because he was one of the people at that school who stayed with me before class, after class. And for that first year, he taught me so much that really propelled me forward. I mean, we, to, to, to give you some context, I came here halfway through sixth grade. I knew three to five words of English. Now, knowing the words and actually using them with confidence are two different things. So I came and we started with math packets. He would create math packets for me, hand them to me at the beginning of each day. I'll go out in the hallway and I'll solve them the whole day. Come back to him and he would pull out, pull out a right, red pen. Red is, I guess, the universal language for something being incorrect. And so he'd cross off all, all the things and I would go back and resolve it. Then we moved to picture books. And one of the first books I read was Molly Pitcher. He read it to me, actually. And, you know, it, it all boils down to people like that who almost believe in you before you can believe in yourself of what you are capable of. And so he stepped up to the plate. He over-delivered. He did everything he could. And I think it's because of efforts like that and all the things that my parents have done I mean, my parents labeled everything in the house with English words, table, wall, window, cup, paper, just so I can get adjusted and, and immerse myself into that culture and the environment. So everything, and after a while, it ended up building momentum 
and I was able to pick up a lot of the things along the way. And, you know, as part of it, when we're speaking about education, I think another important aspect to address is in order for education to truly work, there has to be a level of interest coming from you. And that's where I think the disconnect happens sometimes, especially not only college, I would even say high school, because it happened to me. If you don't have a genuine enough interest within a particular subject, it becomes that much harder for you to fully engage with what's being presented to you. So that's why I think platforms like the one you have built, podcasts, or any other form of expression where you get to ask questions that you genuinely want to know answers to, that's where the real education happens. Because then you are engaged within the conversation and you are having a conversation with someone that you truly want to have that conversation with. So when we talk about education reform in this country and all over the world, I don't think it's as simple as we envision it is that, okay, in person is not working, transition to online. Well, let's think about what aspect of that is not working. And that's, I think, the interest part. How do you get people more interested into the subjects? Well, one way is allow them to pick based on their own interest instead of pre-designing a course for them that does not serve their interests at this particular moment. And if, if, there have, I've, if I've learned anything about interest and curiosity is that if you are genuinely curious about something, it's going to lead you on that proper path of where you're supposed to be. And it's going to connect you to those areas that you might not have had interest in before. I think I could talk to you all day long. Um, I know I could because you just have, there's, there's so much, there's so much to you and mm -hmm. not only just your story, which we could talk about for three hours, but mm -hmm. also to the mission that you're on right now. And the, what I call calling on mm -hmm. your life. And I want you to share about your organization as we're wrapping up, but there's something that just keeps coming up for me. And I, I want to know your, your thoughts you've shifted in, in and out of different identities for lack of a better term mm -hmm. throughout your life. I mean, the beginning, you're the son of a woman who struggles with alcoholism and mm -hmm. fatherless. Then you switch over into this identity of really seeing yourself as an orphan now and a, you know, ward of the state. And then you shift into at 12 years old, an American son. And kind of a outcast outlier in a new country. And so there's these major shifts in identity. How did you process through that and really find who you are? I don't think I've ever been asked this question before. So I appreciate you for asking that question to begin with. I think the way that I found my true identity was really just sitting down with myself and asking myself the question of why me? Why was I the one that was put through all of these events and instances? And the answer, even though it took me a long time to find it, was always right there in front of me. And it was, if not you, then who else? Who else is meant to go through the life that you have? in order to give in the way that you do. So for me, it, it really boiled down to sitting down, 
asking myself the question and evaluating and defining the experiences, not for what they were, but for the way that I allow them to be. And it was really when I flipped the script of allowing myself, giving myself permission to see an experience such as an orphanage, which is described as a horrific place and full of abuse. For me, it was a place of opportunity. Sure, all those things did happen to me. I was abused many times. But it was also that place that helped me learn what discipline looked like, what drive looked like, what it meant to commit commit to something and see it to fruition and actually see the end result. The story that I haven't shared is that when I was at the orphanage, the way that I ended up coming here to the States was actually through a folk singing program that our orphanage put together. And I had no idea that that's, that, that was a hidden talent of mine. No one in my family would sing or do any sort of musical related events, but yet somehow I naturally gravitated towards that. So you are right. I have gone through many different identities and I still do. I think as you grow, you look back at older version of yourself and that's how we really, how I've been able to identify the progress that I've made as a human being is even taking a step back and looking back at yesterday. Yesterday, I was an entirely different person than I am today because I'm able to reflect back on my experience and figure out, well, these are the things that worked. These didn't. These are the relationships I made and these are the possibilities out of all of them. So what, what can I do with them now, knowing what I know? So it, it all boils down to, I think, us sitting down with ourselves and being honest with our own truth, which is, I think, the hardest part is living our truth. And there's no right or wrong when it comes to that. I can't say that the only way to live truth is to do what I'm doing, and that is publicly share your story with thousands and thousands of people because that's not meant for everyone. And you get to define that. That's the most important part. You have a choice in how far you are wanting to go with sharing your story. And most importantly, I think, why are you sharing your story? Because your purpose of sharing your story could be as simple as you getting more comfortable within your own skin. And that's okay. I don't think everyone is meant to change the world on the scale of Gandhi or Steve Jobs, where millions and millions of people are impacted. Some people are meant to change the world literally by changing their own perspective or changing the perspective of their neighbor or five other people. And that's okay. And that's the most important part that I've learned after working in the nonprofit space is that I think we need to look at impact in a little different way. And that is, instead of focusing so much on the numbers and allowing ourselves to decide that I'm not going to give to this particular organization because they're only impacting five people, this one's impacting 5,000, the number 
does not get to determine the type of impact that you've had on those people. The 5,000 people that you might have impacted, you might have not, you might have impacted one or even zero. So it all boils down to how do you look at impact? And I think the way to look at impact is one person at a time, one day at a time. I think that's all we have control over. The fact that I'm able to share, this share is my story, yeah, share my story and impact you in a way, that's all I can do right now. Yes. And that's what allows me to be present here in the moment. Because when I start to think about the future and I start to think about the numbers, then I lose control of what's currently here at hand. Yeah. And I'm not able to, if I'm not here, then how can you be there? Mm. Speaking of your organization, what mm -hmm. do you have going on? You have events, you have a podcast. What's the organization you built? What's your mission, my friend? So we started this organization two years ago called Overcoming Odds. And the mission that we have is to really just elevate a lot of these experiences and voices of people who have overcome unique life circumstances. As part of that, there are no specific groups that it relates to. Rather, it's whoever this, the message speaks to. And so what we started to do is, as you mentioned, is we have a podcast that comes out twice a week. And on that show, the purpose of it is to really just capture stories and allow other people to share their stories of overcoming adversity, different challenges in life, and always ending with seeing a light at the end of the tunnel. I think that's the most important part for us to create that platform where despite of some of the things that have happened to us, there was always a light at the end of that journey. In addition to the podcast, what I've learned was that when we first started this, we launched this whole initiative actually from written stories. It was a campaign called Stand Up and Speak Up. And it's a campaign that we're going to relaunch right now by um, allowing other people to participate and submit their stories through our website. And what was very fascinating was that when we started to look at all of the different submissions that were coming in, and at first it started off as a platform for adoptees and foster youth to share their stories. The purpose of that was to not only educate outsiders about those two particular experiences, but also help those that have gone through it to really embrace their aspect and their identity. Since we've expanded to other demographics, refugees, immigrants, um, LGBTQ. And so what I began to notice was that as we looked at each individual story, we started to ask ourselves the question, and that is, what other resources can we offer? What do we have at our current disposal that we can add additional value to people? And that's what led us to believe to start to create these in-person events. Each event is at its essence, an opportunity for you to get more comfortable with your own narrative. And that is to ask yourself questions which you may not have had a chance to ask yourself before. So the three events that we have coming up, first one is in New York City. It's called Turn Your Pain into a Powerful Message. Um, second one is in Washington, D.C. in October called The Courage to Be You. And the third one is Flourishing Beyond Your Circumstances. The common theme amongst all three is that each one will feature four different speakers 
talking about their own journeys and the ways that they've been able to overcome these seemingly impossible odds at the time and the lessons that they've learned. And in addition, we're also going to have some sessions where people can really have their own breakthrough sessions amongst other attendees and share their stories, elements they've learned. And the goal of it, of all these events, is really just to help us as individuals to develop courage, to share our own story with ourselves to begin with, and then with others if needed, and really understand that all of the things that have happened to us happen for a reason. And so with that knowledge, what are the lessons, what are the takeaways that we can get away from those experiences? And how do we are, allow ourselves to become the best versions of who we are? All of that will be linked in the show notes, website, podcast. And guys, this is just the beginning of all that he has to offer and just his story. We barely skimmed the surface of it. So please connect with him. But I have one question left for you. And it's a favorite question. Uh-huh. Last question. Um, let's say you were to go back in time to that little boy sitting on that bed in the orphanage for the very first time, nine years old, just walked into that family and was entering into a life that he had no idea how it was going to unravel. No Mm -hmm. idea. If you were to sit on that bed with him and tell him one thing, what would that be? Never, Never say can't. Never say what? Never say can't. As in, you can't do something in life. Mm. Everything is possible. You set your mind to it, you achieve it. There's no obstacle too great to overcome. And as part of that journey, believe in who you are. You have what it takes to get to where you want to be. Mm -hmm. The answers are already within you. There is a genius within all of us. And so be open and know that your journey is going to unfold the way that it's meant to be as defined by you. Oleg, thank you so much for your time. It was an honor. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to this bonus interview that we did with Heather Perigy. If you haven't done so already, feel free to subscribe to our monthly newsletter so you can receive all of our latest episodes, featured stand-up and speak-up stories, and ways you can be involved with Overcoming Odds. Once again, we thank you for listening, and we look forward to having you next week.